Don't be so humble. You're not that good. Diana Taurasi said that, and I'm saying this. Welcome to High and Low. Good day and good night. Welcome to another installment of the High and Low Basketball Show. This is episode number 100 and Bielitsa. Bielitsa. Who the hell is that? Also known as episode number 170, Once Upon a Time, Nemanja Bielitsa wore the number 70 during his short 11-game stint as a member of the Miami Heat in 2021. Even though the number 70 isn't a common choice, even though it might seem as elusive as a rare rookie card, let me assure you, it's a band like its infamous predecessor, number 69. You see, the number 70 in the NBA isn't clouded by any prohibitions or double entendres. However, it's, it's as unique as it gets. In the realm of jersey numbers, it's almost a singularity, a rare celestial body within the constellation of basketball digits. The number 70 might not be burdened by controversy, but it sure is a head turner. Unlike Bielitsa's game. What did you say? Solid player. Nemanja Bielitsa, solid player, but I wouldn't say he gets in his bag and turns heads with his moveset, respectfully. Did you hear that? Anyway, welcome to the High and Low NBA show. My name is Ike Amechi. This is a solo one here. Around here, we live by a principle governed by the High and Low lives of the world, which means we talk about basketball, especially and specifically the NBA, and we talk about it at any time, anywhere, north, south, east, west, high, and low. This week on the show, I'm inspired. Last episode, we dove into the mailbag and answered questions from listeners. Uh, one of those questions was about the WNBA versus women's soccer, specifically the Women's World Cup. And the WNBA has often been a contentious topic with some folks on this show. Not all, but some. Uh, Sean had uh, some very pointed remarks about the WNBA product. He made uh, some very valid points. Very valid points, I have to admit. Come on, Jimmy. Even a broken clock is right twice a day. Although uh, I often cape for the W, it was hard uh, to disagree with Sean on this one. And it got me thinking. I've never been the type to point out problems without thinking about potential solutions for the challenges the WNBA product is faced with. So I'm, I'm going to propose three tactics, three things that can fix the WNBA. What are you talking about? What do you mean by that? I'm not assuming that the WNBA is broken, but, you know, just for the sake of the exercise. Um, I was also inspired uh, by a conversation I had with a listener this week about the news of the new Kobe's that will be dropping on his birthday this year and how Kobe's uh, of all the signature shoes in Nike's bag. The Kobe's are the closest to a successor to the Jordan brand. You know, the Kobe brand yeah, actually, I mean, it has a nice ring to it. Yes, so it does. Uh, when when I say closest, that's like finishing second behind Usain Bolt. You know, Jordan Brand, it's so far ahead. It pulls in $6 billion a year. But like I said, I'm inspired. Um, I'm also going to propose a couple things that need to happen for the Kobe's to close that gap. Or at least things that are happening, which gives me reason to believe that the Kobe's are the next in line or could be the next in line. Anyway, stay tuned for all that. You don't want to miss it. Before we lock in, let me check in. Oh, hi. Thanks for checking in. I'm still a piece of garbage. Mm-hmm. Yes, he is. Anyway, listeners, 
Thank you for joining me for another installment of the High and Low NBA show. Another week, another episode, more NBA. So, of course, more high and low. This week in NBA history, Mello put on a show. On August 23rd, 2006, the stage was set for one of the game's luminaries to etch his name in the record books. The name? Carmelo Anthony. As the FIBA World Championship Tournament unfurled its tapestry in Sapporo, Japan. Love that beer. Not a sponsor. It was the clash between the Americans, Team USA, and Italy that would be etched into the pages of history. The man of the hour, Carmelo Anthony, stepped onto the court with a purpose that transcended mere victory with each dribble, each shot. He was weaving a narrative that would resonate for years. The points flowed like poetry from his fingertips. 19 much-needed points in the second half as the Americans were down by nine at the half. Melo the Elder, with a virtuosity that defied opposition, poured in 35 points, a symphony of buckets that reverberated through the arena with each shot. He was not just chasing victory for his team. The Americans edged out the Italians 94-85 for a very close game. He was carving his name alongside the greatest performances of all time, setting a, a new U.S. national team individual scoring record in an international game. The record, previously held by the criminally underrated point god, Kenny Anderson, at 34 points, now found a new bearer in Carmelo Anthony. Anderson, a maestro of the court in his own right, had set the bar high in a 1990 game where the U.S. defeated Puerto Rico in overtime 107-105. Now on this Wednesday night in August of 2006, it was more than just buckets. It was a passing of the torch, a moment that encapsulated the evolution of the game. Now, reflecting upon Kenny Anderson's journey is to traverse the arc of a career that gave us just enough to marvel at while knowing there was room for so much more. Kenny Anderson was the pride of Left Rack City in Queensbridge, New York, also the birthplace of hip-hop icon Nasir Jones, better known as Nas. Kenny Anderson's basketball prowess had been Quite evident from his days at Archbishop Malloy High School to his time at Georgia Tech to the hardwood of the NBA, a point guard with a handle that could only be described as otherworldly, an array of skills built to make any defender look like an infant, he showcased a style that blended finesse and flair. The NBA was his playground, and he had opponents looking like they were stuck in sand, moments of magic as he danced through the defense on a nightly basis in New Jersey. The trio of Kenny Anderson, Derek Coleman, and Drazen Petrovic was scary to watch. It was a movie, and they made the Nets one of the most exciting teams to watch in the 90s. A formidable trifecta, indeed. But not all that seems promised comes to fruition. Uh, While Kenny Anderson's individual skills shone brightly, Anderson's journey was also a testament to resilience. The game demanded much from him, and he battled opponents on the court while battling demons off the court. Despite the challenges, the tragedy of Petrovic's passing, Anderson's legacy, his, his place in a legendary line of New York City point guards endures. So, as we look back on Camelo's record-breaking performance on August 23, 2006, let's give Kenny Anderson some flowers, a player who left an indelible mark on the tapestry of basketball history. Anyway, that's a little something for the NBA history nerds. Things are certainly happening in the NBA today, so let's talk about it. Let's talk about something important. 
had a conversation with a listener last week and we were talking about the new Kobe's scheduled to launch on his birthday, August 24th, two days before my own Virgo season. Uh, we talked about how influential and ubiquitous Kobe's shoes are, especially among NBA players. You know, with that influence, uh, that impact, that ubiquity, it just had me asking a simple question. Are Kobe's the success of the Jordan brand? And actually, it, well, it begged another question. What would it take for Kobe's to eventually surpass Jordan, if at all, if possible? If I'm a Nike executive, these are the questions I'm asking and, and looking to answer. It's not about knocking Jordan brand off the perch. It's about positioning another product at such a high level that it would give you two brands peaking at unprecedented heights, basically. So for anyone who may doubt the possibility of Kobe Bryant as the next brand, let me just share this. Kobe's shoe sales are only rivaled by Ronaldo's since 2000. Cristiano Ronaldo. And soccer is the biggest sport in the world, so that makes sense from a financial perspective. And then there's the cultural impact of Kobe's that, that just can't be understated. Kobe Bryant, as a persona, as a player, he represented everything young players of today want to be. The fire, the passion, the desire. You know, Kobe posthumously and before his passing, he was emblematic of an entire generation of players that, that wear his shoes as a badge of honor, a symbol of their allegiance, basically. I've always been a super like Kobe shoe fan. Always worn Kobe's. I haven't worn anything else really since I was 13 years old, 27 now, so. <laughs> 20% of players wore his shoes while he was active. You know, that jumped to 33% in 2020. During the 2021-2022 NBA season, that number jumped to well beyond 60%. 60% of NBA players wear Kobe's shoes on the court. That's influence. That's impact. That's ubiquity. That's ubiquitous. But do those numbers indicate that the Kobe Bryant brand of shoes could potentially even surpass the iconic Jordan brand? I mean, we're talking about the big leagues of basketball shoe culture here. You know, so let me let me answer this way. First off, let's recognize the elephant in the room. The legacy of Michael Jordan's sneakers is really no joke. It's like trying to surpass the GOAT himself. But hey, uh, Kobe Bryant's brand seems to be uh, seems to be well on its way. And there are some key moves, really, that could get it there or are getting it there. You know, first on the list is authenticity. Kobe's brand is deeply tied to his persona a fearless competitor, a strategic thinker, transparent with his opinions, his perspective, and an artist on the court. All measurements of authenticity and his shoes have personified the same quality. You know, the brand is also stamped with that seal based on the number of players who wear Kobe's on the court. And this is the definition of authenticity. And they also prove the performance of the shoes. Performance is a key component of success when it comes to, to getting to the top or staying on top in terms of shoes. Maybe not always, because <laughs> some Jordans are not comfortable. Let's just let's just keep it a buck. Not made to play in. But Kobe's are made to play or or else they, they wouldn't be worn by so many professional athletes on the court. And when Vanessa Bryant severed ties with Nike back in April of twenty twenty one, it created scarcity. That's the other key factor here, scarcity. You know, there was a, a scramble, a mad dash for Kobe's because 
we knew supply was going to diminish. They started becoming Jordan-like in their demand among sneakerheads. Scarcity increased demand, which increased value. You know, and Jordans have had the same effect over the years. The other factor in getting Kobe's shoes to the next level is design. You know, Kobe Bryant's shoes have become synonymous with the low cuts. Uh, before Kobe's low-cut basketball shoes were like a four-letter word, and now they become so prevalent in basketball culture and basketball circles to the point where, you know, it it, it it's the preference for many for many players. Jordan Lowe's, Kyrie Lowe's, they've grown in popularity, and I can attribute this to Kobe's, honestly, in my opinion. Uh, the brand represents a shift, a change, and that's big. So the formula is, is there. Authenticity, demand, scarcity, design, and the last one is lore. Okay, I just want to add that one last thing, lore. Kobe's represent the man, the myth, the legend. Kobe's lore has only grown and it will continue to grow similar to Jordan's mystique. You know, Kobe's mystique is undeniable and we see it with the admiration, the adulation shown by players, guys who identify themselves and pride themselves on the fact that they're Kobe guys. You know, it's all a part of what can become the next big brand. Anyway, shout out to Manish for that conversation, which inspired this uh, this little soliloquy. <laughs> um, but hey, man, anytime I get an opportunity to talk about Kobe Bryant, you know, you know me, I'm going to jump on that one. Uh, hey, quick reminder to High and Low Lives. If you want to leave a question for us to answer on the show, any of our mailbag episodes, send your DM to us on TikTok and more High and Low. You can send your DM to us on, on Instagram at Get High and Low. When we come back, we're going to talk about the WNBA and how I'm about to fix it. What are you talking about? What do you mean by that? It's not broken, but you get what I'm saying. This is High and Low. This moment is brought to you by High and Low listeners. This week on the High and Low NBA show, listeners were asked to share their top five Kobe Bryant brand shoes because this is the week of the Mamba's birthday. It's Ike's birthday too. We heard from Manish in Richmond Hill, Ontario, Canada. Manish shared his list starting with number five, the Kobe 4 Finals MVP home and away colorways. Amen, brother. Amen. Love this. All right. Upper mid-tier design, but top tier in terms of colorways and what this shoe represents. Number 4 on Manisha's list is 2016's Kobe 11 Elite Low Achilles Heel Editions. These Kobe's dropped during his farewell tour, and they're symbolic of one of his greatest challenges, his season-ending injury to his Achilles in 2013. Number 3 is 2008's Kobe 8 Green Glows, the tequila-sipping beach-themed colorway with the snakeskin print is a work of perfection. I agree with that. Number 2 of Manisha's top 5 list is 2010's Nike Zoom Kobe 6 Grinch Drop. Wow. The Volt Green colorway and translucent outsole are a must-have in any sneakerhead's collection. Manisha's top pick is the Kobe 10 Elite Premium HTM Race Car Sneakers. HTM stands for Hiroshi, Tinker, and Mark. Shoe design legends Hiroshi Fujiwara, Tinker Hatfield, and Mark Parker got together to collectively design this version of Kobe's. Did they get money? They would get money for that, wouldn't they? The asymmetric black, green, and red blended flyknit put this edition in elite company amongst Nike's best ever. These shoes are a work of art. I agree. Thank you, Manish. Great list for sneakerheads and happy birthday, Mamba. Let's get back to the program. 
And we are back. I'm Ike Amechi, and this is the High and Low NBA show. As I said before, I'm inspired. Today, we're going to dive into the world of the WNBA, the Women's National Basketball Association. I'm going to share the three things that, in my opinion, could elevate the WNBA product. Now, I'm not saying that the, the league needs fixing. That's not what I'm saying here at all. <laughs> I watch the WNBA. I watch the games. I enjoy the product, but it's not perfect. Uh, you know, we've had similar conversations about the NBA on this podcast, right? I'm not one to rest on laurels. I always look to improve myself, improve my work, improve everything. You know, we're all a work in progress, uh, you know, and it's basically the same thing that I'm doing here. This is the same exercise. So don't come after me. I'm talking about building upon a good product, taking it to new heights. So so with that said, let's jump into these three ideas, these solutions, these pivot points that could take the WNBA to the stratosphere of sports. I like to use tennis as a prime example of a sport that has given men and women equal profile, equal pay. It's still a work in progress, but stars of the WTA, which is a Women's Tennis Association, and on the men's side, it's the ATP, the Association of Tennis Professionals. You know, they're equally bright. And in some cases, the women have exceeded the men in profile. I think Serena Williams. But back to basketball and, and the three potential solutions. Speaking of superstars, superstars, very important. That brings me to the first point. Every great league thrives on its superstars and the WNBA is no different. Magic Johnson and Larry Bird are credited with leading the NBA into resurgence and a new era of prosperity in the 1980s. The league was struggling financially, but it turned a corner when it was able to uh, mint Magic and Bird as the faces of the league. The W has its fair share of exceptional talent, but how much how much do we know about these players? How much access should the audience have to their stories, their lives? I think this is critical information needed for, for building an effective narrative that an audience can connect with. So, so I'm going to throw a, a twist into the narrative playbook. Let's use media to shine a blinding spotlight on these incredible athletes. Picture this documentary series that pulls you into the lives, the journeys, the challenges of these WNBA stars, not the teams, the stars. So think about the Formula One Drive to Survive docuseries on Netflix and that spillover success. The series drew huge numbers on Netflix. Every season saw a big jump in viewership, and it's deservedly credited with helping boost the popularity of F1 in the U.S. And why is that? You know, the series connected a casual audience to the drivers, uh, the people and their stories. You know, we're talking about creating a bond between fans and players, celebrating their successes and giving you a backstage pass to the drama, the sweat, the victories, the losses. This is what the WNBA could potentially experience with a similar approach. A series on Netflix, Apple TV Plus, Amazon's Prime Video. Actually, Prime already offers WNBA games, so there could be a potential partnership there. But um, I, I would target Netflix because, because of its greater market share. It has greater reach. guys what's next next let's chat about presentation summer sun and basketball sounds like a match made in sports heaven 
Well, why not capitalize on the warmer months and move the games to outdoor venues? You know, the WNBA plays most of its season during the, the summer. So imagine the energy of a mid-sized stadium or arena, the sun setting behind the skyline and the crackle of anticipation in the air. It's a fresh take, a unique experience that could redefine how we enjoy the game. The WNBA presentation basically mirrors the NBA product. And as a result of that, expectations will match. You know, WNBA teams play in NBA arenas but they're not as full, right? So it kind of takes something away from the experience. You know, there's, there's a huge difference between both experiences and the, that difference is amplified by the fact that you're, you're swapping teams and players but keeping everything else identical. The WNBA needs to be different in as many ways as possible and playing games in outdoor settings creates a unique experience unlike anything the NBA could offer. <laughs> Maybe not every game outdoors, but as many as possible. And it will just create a different experience altogether. Okay, moving on. Let's mix things up. And this, this, this might be controversial, but let's mix things up by lowering the rims. I know, I know this. I know, listen, I know this is controversial because WNBA players have gone on record to say they do not agree with lowering the rims they don't want it and i'm not saying that to undermine the skills of these athletes the ability of these athletes uh it's it's about showcasing a different style of play that that highlights agility creativity athleticism it's like watching a whole new form of artistic expression on the court if that makes any sense and listen players adapt i've heard their arguments against it the the claims that players have played on 10-foot rims their entire lives and and a lower rim would be disruptive to their game. And I think these players are underestimating themselves, their abilities. You know, they are so skilled that they would quickly adapt. I think so. You know, let's just be honest. Let's address the other elephant in the room. And it's this. Not all rims are exactly 10 feet anyway. The rims at the local high school or L.A. Fitness or the outdoor courts around the corner down the street. There's a good chance there are variations in the heights of those rims. And this has been proven. I shouldn't even say there's a good chance. This has been proven. So why not try it? Who are you talking to right now? Those are the three things. There it is. Three potential game changers for the WNBA that could elevate the game. Superstars with a spotlight, games under the sun, and a fresh perspective on the court. You know, these could be the elements that redefine the game, draw new fans to the sport, to the league and captivate fans in ways we've never seen before. Lowering of the rims, I'll have to admit that may be a sticking point, but two out of the three, I think could work. Why the f- I can't shoot three point shots? That brings us to the end of this episode of the High and Low NBA Basketball Show. I hope you enjoyed this one. Uh, feel free to share your thoughts on these ideas with a review. You know, just drop that rating in there afterwards. Uh, you know where to find us. We're on Instagram, we're on TikTok, Twitter, YouTube. Links to those are on the show notes. Once again, music is by Live of the Enjoy Music Group. That's the music you're listening to right now. You can find Live on Twitter and on Instagram at LYVE. Additional music is by Sonny Rockwell of The Goodness. Sound design is by Vaughn August. This is a Vaughn Abraham podcast, just in case you didn't know. So, 
On behalf of the Mandem, as usual, I'm Ike Amechi. Thank you for listening to High and Low, and we'll talk to you next week.